I'm speaking with uh, composer Richard Harvey, who has uh, been composing for film and television for uh, many, many years. Uh, he has an established uh, a relationship with uh, Mr. Hans Zimmer, who he co-composed uh, Le Petit Prince with, The Little Prince, uh, which will be coming out in July. Um, and I've been a huge fan of his for such a long time. Uh, Richard, thank you so much for uh, talking today. Hello, Kai. Great pleasure to be with you. So, um, kind of rewinding kind of back, I'd love to know, at what point uh, did film and TV music come uh, come into your life? And what kind of really got you in, interested in music at the very beginning? Well, actually, the, um, the interest came from my family. And uh, I was thinking about this earlier. Your, your, um, your, your question has just provoked me to... To, to, to think more mm -hmm. because it, it's actually amazing how many musicians come from musical families. Right, yeah. And actually a hell of a lot of sportsmen and women come from sporting families. So I think so much more so than any other profession. Maybe acting, there tends to be a bit of that as well. But it's really extraordinary. I mean, that said, you know, my father was a musician. He was briefly a professional composer during his early professional life. But he found that a bit tough and went on to do other things. But what that meant was that he, he had, as I was growing up, I mean, from day one, really, he had a kind of composer's room. He had a composer's study. Mm -hmm. He had a piano. He had the big pile of empty manuscript paper and all the sharpened pencils and the metronome and all the things that you need and a big record collection and he listened a lot and whereas my brother and my sister I don't, don't think it ever occurred to them for a moment to become musicians it was always what I was going to do from my earliest memory onwards and so what, what kind of paths did your siblings take that's kind of interesting if they, so they didn't didn't stick on the musical path they went on their no. own well, they, they, they went different, different paths. Um, my sister is now a happy mother with grown-up <laughs> kids. Yeah. And, uh, but my brother went into the media, but he, he went into broadcasting initially in radio. And then he went into uh, in-flight entertainment. So he actually uses a lot of my music, which is nice. Wow. But yeah. completed, you know, completely different pathways, but... I just, I don't think I copied my father, but I was just completely influenced by right. everything he liked. He took me to concerts. All the music he liked, I naturally was drawn to. The music he didn't like, I naturally didn't find an affinity with. And it was just great having a piano around with music always on the stand. Mm -hmm. And every time I wanted to learn an instrument, I could always do that, you know, and uh, music's always been my life. It's been my first language, really. Yeah. So at, at what point did uh, did the idea for film and television composing come in? What what did that kind of segue start? Well, it was an interesting one. It, it's, everything happened very early for me. I left school quite, quite early, and I went to the Royal College of Music in London, and uh, I went there young. I was just... Oh, I was still 16 when I started at the Royal College of Music, and I graduated wow. early, and I left, I guess, when I was 18. And at that time, I was starting to get offers to play on film scores, 
because I, I played some interesting instruments, some unusual instruments. I'd been I'd been really um, studying early music at college and and throughout my time at school, and I played instruments like the recorder and all the other sort of more peculiar woodwind instruments of mm-hmm. the medi- medieval and renaissance period. I'd also tried a few um, folk instruments, and so I don't know. I I just. Uh, suddenly found I was getting offered work playing on quite big film scores when I was 19 or 20, which was amazing. Yeah. And, um, and I saw these composers breezing in, you know, either from the left, if it was someone like Maurice Jarre coming in from Paris, mm-hmm. or from the right, if it was John Williams coming in from, from L.A., and I was just so inspired by by what these guys were doing, and I was so in awe of seeing this, the film up on the screen in the studio. And you know, because I was always playing some kind of solo instrument, I'd always sneak into the booth and have a listen. Right. And I was I was hooked right from that point. And what really worked out well for me, I then went on and formed a band, and I went with that band, made five albums and toured for a few years. Wow. And by the time I got out of that band, I guess I was at a better age. I would have been 25, 24, 25 when my band finally split up. Mm-hmm. And the kind of age where I could actually concentrate. I didn't even know I was a writer. It was, it was being in a band that made me write. Not not because I had music trying to come out of me all the time. It's only because the other members of the band were so lazy they didn't write <laughs> anything. So so it fell to me to do it. And eventually, I thought, okay, I've unlocked this one and and I can write, and I'm going to enjoy it. So so I, I was then free to sort of go back into the world of commercial writing. Right. And uh, I didn't feel intimidated by it the way I would have done three or four years earlier so uh, but I, it it felt I mean right now in the in the in the 21st century I think there's a very great freedom people can write anything you like and or anything they like they express themselves in any way they can and the and you know the the great audience out there on iTunes Spotify and YouTube will decide whether they like it or not but you know, in the 1980s, you know, the 70s and the 70s and the 80s, you had to fight your way through a forest of critics. Right. Yeah. Or, or you'd have to convince a management company or an agency that you could be taken on and that you were worth pursuing. So it was really easy to to, to feel quite intimidated by the whole idea of becoming a professional composer. Um, in some ways, it's more difficult to start out now. Because there's so much competition. I know it's a lot, yeah. Yeah, but you know, it's. I guess I, I found a route through that jungle. Um, in in the in the late seventies, early eighties. And uh, glad you did. Yeah, glad you got through the jungle. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> I've I've enjoyed the ride. You know. <laughs> and uh, but I mean, looking at your career, you know, a lot of composers, uh, really anyone in the business, uh, feels it's necessary to kind of flock to Los Angeles to pursue this career of uh, film and TV and fame and fortune and all that stuff. But you're you managed to 
produce your career and, and keep it at home in the UK. Was there a reason you decided to stay in the UK and never come to relocate? Yeah, because it, it's film, and it's actually, it, it's not the thing you can arrive in LA and say, which is, this isn't the only thing I want to do. Mm-hmm. You have to arrive in LA saying, look, I don't care if I never see my family again. All I want to do is give myself to film music. Right. They they like that kind of level of, of total commitment. And I, I've always had the idea that I, I can't be what I am as a musician if I don't do other things. Mm-hmm. And And throughout my career, I've played concerts, not just of film music. I've played concerts of Baroque music. Mm-hmm. I've, conduct, I've conducted orchestras. I've written music for theater. Um, I've written music for TV. I mean, there was a time where you couldn't go to LA and be somebody who worked on film and TV. It was unthinkable. Right, yeah. Uh, I'd never wanted to cut TV out of my life. I'd never wanted to cut doing commercials out of my life. And certainly not playing classical music and and taking part in concerts. So I felt that staying in London, I could really have a fully rounded musical life. And and half the things, or more than half the things that, that interested me would simply be missing, wouldn't be available to me in LA. That's very interesting. Yeah, I never uh, heard that perspective before. It's always... And I, and I, and I, I think, you know, one of the... This will link up to... To, to to any questions that we might discuss relating to Little Prince. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you just need to get someone involved who's come at it from a different direction. True, yeah. From a With different a different background. different background, different form of musical schooling through life. Absolutely. And um, I mean, and I guess that we can segue a little bit into Little Prince that way because you worked with your friend... Hans Zimmer uh, on, yep. on on the on Little Prince, and uh, you know it's directed by the great Mark Osborne, who directed Kung Fu Panda, and actually one of my favorite short films of his, uh, which we watched in film school, and I still watch today's more. I really love his short. Yeah, it's a great little film, isn't it? Uh, oh, it's fantastic, and and mm. it, and you and here you collaborated with Hans uh, on the music. Now you have a great history with Hans, and so how did this collaboration come to be? What made Le Petit Prince the right project for you two? Well. You know, I, th- I think that Hans had, had a good experience uh, working with John Powell on the two Panda movies. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, John Powell, like myself, comes very much from a classical background, to, steeped in classical music. Right, yeah. And um, I think, you know, Hans felt it was time to, to collaborate with someone else, but it he didn't want to collaborate with someone who was completely new to him. And of course he and I have been friends since the late seventies and we've always said we don't work with each other enough. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to understand why I'm over here in London. He's got the world beating a path to his door in Santa Monica. Right. You know, he's just got no shortages, no shortage of offers of people to work with him. And that's fine. I'm not there knocking on his door. But, you know, when when um, Little Prince first came up, he he said to Nick Lenny-Smith, who is a you know, great mutual friend. Absolutely, yeah. He said, um, 
you know, why why don't we work on this together? And and Nick said, well, hey, why don't you get Richard involved? Because this this sounds just so up his street. And actually, I think Nick wanted that to happen, and Hans ended up wanting that that to happen too. And in the end, kind of Nick quietly backed out of it and just left Hans and I to get on with it, which was an incredibly selfless thing to do. Absolutely, uh, yeah. And he just so believed that there'd be the right chemistry. And I mean, and uh, I mean, so what was that collaboration like? Did you two work independently and then combine ideas, or did you actually sit with Hans in a room and hash it out together? Well, it's an interesting one because we, what was I wasn't party to the early discussions with Mark, uh, but quite clearly, they wanted a very different approach to this. Mm-hmm. They did not want standard issue animation music. Not not old school standard issue animation music. Uh, not you know the, the the modern equivalent either. They wanted something completely different that felt a little bit more like art and would be not only acceptable to the markets of France and Germany mm-hmm. and let's say. Canada, you know, where there's a strong affiliation with the the book Little Prince. Right. Um, they wanted something that that kind of shared the magic, not only of of of, of the writing of the book, but also of the the watercolors and the the kind of, if you like, the magic realism of the whole thing. And that. The, the initial discussions actually revolved around looking at French classical music, Ravel, Debussy, Saint-Saëns, um, and, you know, even French film music. And so it's like I was brought in as the classical specialist mm-hmm. and Hans was going to more look after the the songs. Okay. And... Um, but of course, any any project that Hans is involved in, he brings his creativity and his, you know, unparalleled level of experience. Right. I mean, and actually, you know, one thing about Hans is, um, you know, so much is known about him, but the effort and the, the effort that he puts in every time to seek out originality in a new way of approaching. In any kind of music for any kind of film, it's almost like the first suggestion that you make will he, he will never accept <laughs> because he has to say, "Let's hey guys, let's look for a parallel universe here." Yeah, you know, let's let's get our first three great ideas and then throw them all in the bin and go for something different, and and so often that that leads you down a new path and that that's certainly what what happened here. I mean, the, the working together was, I think it was very much um, a, um, a three-way thing with Mark. Mark is a great director, and he's a really lovely guy. But I, I'm, I've just been so impressed by the way that he carries this vision with him of the movie and, and you know, how focused he is on his storytelling. Now, like so many directors, he doesn't really have the ability to imagine how the music will be. Mm-hmm. And if he did, he'd be writing it himself. Right, yeah. 
which I'm glad he wouldn't because when most directors try and do that it ends up with pretty poor, pretty right. poor result, as we all know. Right. But anyway, but he he is so clear when he hears something that is right that harmonizes with his vision for the movie. He really encourages it, and you know he then starts to fire off some ideas, and you know why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? And so, in the end, it was sort of collaboration in the in the. Um, in the discussions about it, but um, you know, it, the score tended to be more my responsibility, and the songs and the production of the songs um, was Hans's because there were three really important songs in this, and you know, obviously there was a temp score in place, something mm. I I don't like, and a lot of people don't like. Right. Yeah. Um, not to say there was anything wrong with the material in the temp score, but you know, the sooner it goes, the better. And that's a particular problem with songs. And, you know, first of all, we wanted to, you know, the, the, the temp songs were all American. And we said, you know, we still want to, you know, because with Jeff Bridges voicing the lead character, it was sounding pretty American. And we wanted to just revisit the French roots of this story, mm -hmm. which is why Hans eventually contacted Camille uh, Dalmay, who, whose voice is the true voice of this film and is so French and so beautiful and so original. Oh, she is beautiful. She did uh, a Ratatouille, I think, with Michael Giacchino. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, Sure. And, I mean, um, you know, she brings something so special to this. Mm -hmm. And uh, rather than, you know, half the, the team of this film thinking, well, whatever we end up with as the songs in these films, we're not going to love them as much as the ones that were there throughout the gestation process of this film. Actually, what they've got is stuff they love so much more. Mm -hmm. And what it, you know, it's all original. It belongs to them. It belongs to the score. It belongs to the film. It belongs to the characters. And just for once, it just feels like the score and the songs grow in and out of each other that's important i really i think that it, oh it, it it's know. great because it, they just don't feel bolted on they feel like they come from the mind of the characters mm -hmm. and that's that's what mark was always going to achieve that's what he sets out to achieve it, there's there's something so organic about the way he plans the you know the arc of his story right so I mean, what, I think, what 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 was informing, I guess, the score? I mean, you're talking about the, the coming from the mind of the characters, but like, what was the, when you first came onto the project? What really spoke to you? Was it the plot? I mean, I'm sure it was the characters, the setting, and emotion. But what really kind of got that first note out? Like, what was the kind of first kind of thing? That well, no, out? the book, definitely the mm -hmm. book. The book. I mean, before I even saw the film, I wrote three or four themes. Oh wow! Just yeah. from just from reading the book. And, you know, those three or four films, themes have ended up as strong themes within the movie. So I felt that I was, I was right to do that. Um, you know, at that time, I had more time to work on it because Hans was finishing his previous film and, and um, was preparing to work on the Grammys. So I, I had a little bit of time and I thought, oh, well, I'll get some, some ideas in just from reading the book. And I'm very glad I did. Because anything that is right for the book is right for this film. Although the, the film is not of the book, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it has to be its own its own thing as well. Any, yeah, any anything that that harmonizes with the book will suit this film, but the film is not of the book. Mm-hmm. So when when you're working with Hans uh, and you're working with Mark or Hans, and there is a a disagreement or there is something where you guys kind of contrast ideas, how do you get through that? Is it a just kind of a hash it out? talk with each other trying to uh, do you try to convince them your point of view do you try to see the other person's point of view i mean how do you work through that kind of collaborative process where something one of you disagrees well there's 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 a two-word answer to that question Mm -hmm. and it's bob badamy Uh, (laughs) and bob is is the greatest little referee to have you Mm -hmm. know if, if, if it was a boxing match, he'd be this tiny guy coming in and pushing the two <laughs> great fighters apart from each other and sending them to the corners. But, of course, it never comes to that. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, Bob's um, take on all of this, and it's something that I agree with wholeheartedly, is, you know, the movie comes first. Right. Servicing the narrative. You may, you may think you've just written the best thing you've ever written in your life. Well, hey, buddy, save it for your next movie. <laughs> because, you know, the the needs of this film are absolutely paramount, no pun intended. But seriously, Bob is, is a fantastic um, kind of barometer of, you know, he's like, the, he's a, like a policeman who has got the full length of the score in his head the whole time. And if something doesn't gel with it, he, he knows. Because when you're writing, you tend to concentrate on that little chunk of film you're working on. Right. Whereas Bob just kind of watches the whole film twice a day. You know, and he, he tries things in different places. He moves things around. And he's, he, he, well, the guy's so experienced. He's, he's got to be the best, best score wrangler in town. And it, it, was, it was just great. I worked... And got to know Bob with um, in the days of Da Vinci Code, but this mm-hmm. is the first time I've done a complete score with him, and he was really inspirational. But you know, it's it's a very happy room, Hans's room, and we just play ideas to the director. We don't say who who wrote them. Yeah. And if the director says, "Well, I kind of like the orchestration of that idea, but I like the material of the second idea, or I like the beginning of the first idea, and I like the end of the second idea." We just sort it out, you know, because if you take the view, the movie comes first. Then you listen to what the director has to say. And when you've got a great guy and a great director like Mark, if you really believe that that something is getting missed, you know, and we're talking ourselves out of using a great bit of music, Mm -hmm. then he will listen. You say, Mark, just before we go away from this, I've worked on this overnight have a listen to this. And he may say, no, I, I still think we should go the other way. Or he may say, oh, thank you for doing that. That I, I can see that now. That works great. So, you know, when you have a happy project like this one was, and, and you know, I, I feel that, that it was a quartet of Hans, myself, Bob, and Mark. Which it should creating, be. Yeah, I like the whole collaborative process, together. yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. I mean, yeah. I, and I think that's the best way to get things done. You, you you bounce ideas. I mean, a lot of there's a lot of these purists out there that go, it has to be the singular, one vision, blah 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 blah. But I think it's better when you 
ideas mesh with other ideas and it becomes something that you never expected it to be. Oh, yes. I mean, you know, you, you've only got to look at the way scripts are written. Right, that too, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's how you get such great scripts in the States. Mm-hmm. It's comparative, you get, like, yeah. six people working on them. And you end up with no weakness in there anywhere. Right. Because it's hard to so, see your own weaknesses, I think. You need another oh, pair of eyes or ears. Sure. And, and, and to create a really, you know, a really good score that is, you know, over an hour's music in a really short space of time. You know, it, it's tough for anyone to just keep their mind on the big picture, which mm. is what you have to do. Anyone with talent can produce a minute's worth of great music. But to, to create a score that works as, as, as a score takes spending quite a bit of time standing back from it. Right. So, I mean, you know, uh, it, I'd have to be a lot better composer than I am to say, hey, guys, I'm doing it all myself and I'm not <laughs> going to listen to anyone's advice. I'm not gonna, I don't need to listen to the director. I don't need to listen to Bob Badamy, you know. So, fine. No, we had a happy score and we're all really proud of the results. And, uh, and you were talking about how earlier you were talking about how Hans kind of pushes for those first ideas to kind of get something new, original, uh, creative. And I feel like animated films, they really lend themselves to that kind of musical creativity, uh, you know, because a unique soundscape and world has to be built. So, I mean, and you talked about you wrote some music before, by just reading the book, but what kind of uh, instrumentation or stylings did you use? Did it take some experimenting to find the right sound of the score? Or was it kind of obvious from Mark's kind of vision? Um, no, nothing was obvious. Um, we, we we could have gone in almost any direction, except that it wasn't going to be an electronic score. Right. First of all, the I should say something about the film. Um, the film is a modern story, which features references to the the book of the Little Prince. Mm -hmm. So when you go into the world of the Little Prince, the animation style is completely different. It's stop motion, beautiful um, stop motion animation using paper characters. And when you're in the modern world, the real world, it's all CG animation. Mm -hmm. And what we wanted to do was create a style of music for the Little Prince's world and a style of music for the modern world because the modern world was essentially a world without a lot of heart. And yet the heart was the, the, the center of the Little Prince's world. Mm -hmm. And we knew that we wanted to bring these two styles together towards the end of the movie because that's the way it worked. So we, we opted to go for an orchestral score I mean, particularly as we'd started out looking at classical music. Right, yeah. And we, we, we played a lot of classical music up against the picture. And and we knew that, that you know, a lot of the <clears throat> tenderness and luminosity of this music suited the film really well. And, you know, we, we were really moving away from music synchronizing to picture. 
Hmm. You know, there's for an animation, there's unbelievably little of that. Right. Yeah. And so uh, that 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 became our kind of rule of thumb. You know, if we've, we 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 found that we were sort of Mickey Mousing it, we just hit the stop and un <laughs> unravel it and start again. Yeah, hit the stop button. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <Abort. laughs> yeah, so we used a big orchestra. And um, we were going to use a, a female choir, but it, actually we ended up asking Camille to do the, the the job of the choir, which sounded very different and and very beguiling, I must say. Mm -hmm. um, but we also made a point of using a, a number of interesting instruments. For example, we used in the in the, in the keyboard section of the orchestra, we had a, a grand piano, but we also had two upright pianos, one of which was deliberately out of tune. We used a reed organ, and we used an accordion. Um, we used various unusual woodwind instruments. I played quite a bit of recorder on the score and a bit of mandolin. So there was a kind of uh, historic and ethnic side of it. It was, you know, in the... I suppose the score that I listened to a lot before tackling this uh, was Fantastic Mr. Fox. Oh, beautiful score. I love that okay. score. Okay. And uh, we're more orchestral than that, but that right. tapestry of odd little acoustic sounds is always there. And uh, I mean, that, I mean that's, it's, it seems like a perfect fit, too. And I know I've, I spoke to another composer. He worked... Um, uh, on a film, and he said, "Yeah, it was really the producers were kind of looking at that style or that kind of sound." For uh, yeah, I think that was very much a personal thing. I don't think I was particularly pushed by either Mark or Hans to look that way. But mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I just said that we need a little cadre of of instruments sitting within our orchestra that's not unlike the sound of Fantastic Mr. Fox, and I, you know, nobody disagreed with that. So we we did go to some degree down that road and it and it worked nicely. But this, this score's got a lot of tunes in it. It's got a lot of melodies. Well that's great. I love melodies, so Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, it's it's you certainly would know you'd heard a few themes when you <laughs> it leaves the theatre after this one. Well that's good. Um but I mean looking at the I mean looking at the story of the Little Prince as a whole, you know, it's such a widely known and, adapt, and it's been adapted into many variations, including, you know, the well-known live-action film with Bob Fosse and Gene Wilder. And did, yeah. that, did that make it a challenge to make sure this felt unique and new? Did, or was it, um, I mean, was it daunting of a task to be like, okay, this has been told for generations and generations in different media and different ways. How are we going to make it our own? Well, no, because uh, they, actually there are a number of reasons why I don't think the 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 Gene Wilder film was even remotely relevant mm -hmm. to this. Um, first of all, this is a new generation of people right. that we're bringing to it. And um, you could say filming the book could replace the book. Mm -hmm. This this movie doesn't in any way attempt to do that. What it does is draw people towards the book. I This movie has done its job if anyone age 5 to 85 leaves the cinema saying, I must read that book, mm. or 
I read that book a long time ago. I must read it again. Mm-hmm. You, uh, it couldn't be more dissimilar from the 70s version of the film. Incidentally, um, you know, th- this one is, this movie is fully backed by the Saint Exupery family. Oh, well, that's terrific, uh, yeah. And the, the film in the 70s was not at all. So, despite the fact this is literally not a filming of the book, it just makes references to the book. Right. Okay, it's called The Little Prince, and there's enough of a, or the Little Prince in this story for you to accept that that is the correct title of the film. What it does, it rouses your curiosity in the character and the book to such an extent that I don't think anyone would not reread the book after going to see this film. I mean, it, it so, makes me want so to this, read the book right now. So. <laughs> yeah, but i tell you what, this, this is not a remake of anything, and it, it's not sort of competition for anything that happened in the past, mm-hmm. or frankly very likely for anything that's going to happen in the future. It is very much its own thing. It's of its time, and uh, I, I hope that it will succeed in its aim of bringing a, a, a whole new generation to the book. Absolutely. And in, in fact, another thing that, it, in some ways, this, is, although it's not the book, in some ways it, it it fills a gap that was in the book. And this is something that that Camille was very interested in. She said she always, growing up in France, she always knew the book and she always loved the book, but she felt heartbroken that there wasn't a female character in it, which now you have. Well, yes, exactly. I mean, the closest to a female character was the character of the Rose mm-hmm. in the book, who was a negative and, and selfish right. character. And now with the little girl being really the lead character of this film, and the little girl is a superstar, you know, not only voiced by a superstar, but this girl is just, she's got a great heart. She's incredibly resourceful. She's incredibly loving. She's just, and she's in a, in a world that doesn't suit her. So she's, you know, she's so drawn to this story because it's all about the heart. It's perfect. You know, it, it's filling a massive gap for a lot of people mm-hmm. in, in introducing a, a, a really major female character to the story, which is terrific. And, uh, which it is, and I, mean, I, I love seeing, and it is kind of the drawing makes it relatable i think to other children or adults anywhere if you're related relatable to that story and and be able to connect to that little prince story i think it's uh i mean you get emotional just from watching the trailer so it's well i i, I tell you what we we were my wife and i went to the premiere at Cannes, and it's a big theater there mm-hmm. and i don't know felt like two thousand people well. something like that and of course most of the people or many of the people in that theatre will be French and will be you know well aware of the the story right and you know I was sitting a couple of rows back from Mark Osborne thinking this is such a big moment for him and he was sitting there clutching his little fox which he's carried around with him everywhere (laughs) Um, even on the music sessions in London he had his little fox with him and at the end of the movie, everyone stood up and applauded and just kept applauding for about 20 minutes. Wow. It was extraordinary, and Mark was so overcome with emotion 
because he just knew that he'd, he'd really done a service for the film and its place in French history and French culture. Mm-hmm. When, when he was that well accepted by that crowd. It was a fantastic moment. I was, you know, so glad I was, so glad I was there to witness it. <laughs> fantastic moment. And uh, I mean, in talking, you know, you're retelling the story. Well, you're adapting, connecting to the story. So maybe it's not. Uh, this question is not really just for uh, this version of uh, the Little Prince. But I think there's a large negative uh, commentary on remakes and reboots and adaptations and sequels, complaining of lack of originality. And and while there is surely a, you know a financial reason reason for studios to go back to these kind of films, I think it speaks more. Uh, to me, to the human nature of storytelling, of loving how your mom or dad read you your favorite stories as a child, their interpretation. I mean, do you think it's important to keep retelling our favorite stories, our favorite fairy tales, of our favorite, you know, adventures for future generations? Well, uh, yes, I do, but I don't think that's what's happened here. No, and yeah, I, I yeah. think we, we've we've covered that. Right. What, what what is nice is that this is this film is Mark Osborne's story. Right. Um. And the two screenwriters have, have, you know, finished it for him. But it is his story. But the the family of Saint Exupéry approve it and they love it. And like I say, it will bring people to the book mm-hmm. in the best possible way. And you know what? I, what I didn't know, and and Mark told me at the recording sessions in London. He said the whole Saint Exupery family um, don't take any money from the sales of the book or the film or any of the merchandise. It, it's all, excuse me, <coughs> it's a charitable foundation. Oh, wow. And it all goes to, to charity. And, and what they're doing is they're saying, right, well, we don't have a lot of time left before this book and all the images that are associated with this book go out of copyright and you know we want to make the the definitive the final and the best statement that we can make about what this story really means mm-hmm. before it becomes a free for all right and that's you know it's only in a few years time that anybody can do anything with it so it was incredibly important that the family the estate of saint exupery really really got behind this story, really loved it, really believed in it. And in a way, it's the opposite of retelling a story because it's a new story and because it will take people right back to uh, the book, right back to 1949 when the book was published. Mm -hmm. In fact, I, I bought myself a 19... 53 copy of the book a French copy in French and just sort of kept it with me all the time I was working on it and it is a lovely thing and of course I've read the the story in English and you know looked at all the illustrations and it's a beautiful thing it's it's I think the third most translated book in history, yeah, it's it's up there. It's one of the it's, most treasured, yeah. beloved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what what has been done here is very respectful, but it's also 
really good entertainment. Mm-hmm. But sure, there will be some reviews that will that will carp at this and say, well, what's this all about? This is not the story of the Little Prince. It's it's taken a very French story and Americanized it. And you know why have these cartoon characters got so, such big eyes and all that sort of thing? But actually, even the reviewers so far who've just leaned a little in that direction, they've all come back and say, actually, I don't want to trash this film because I think it's going to be loved by generations. Right, and it's been great reviews. You guys have gotten yeah. amazing reviews since the debut at Cannes. And I think it's it'll be opening in, I think, in the States uh, in July, I believe, right? Uh, no, I don't think so. Oh, no? Uh, well, you know, maybe you know better than I. I know it will be released in France in July. Okay, maybe that's what I was I know thinking. it's going to be right. released in the UK in October, which is a, a long gap after Okay, so maybe France. the States will be coming around later. Though. Yeah, I, w- I would think later in the year. But, but I, I do think there's such honesty in this film that um, I don't think it'll produce much in the way of cynical commentary. I mean, yeah, unless you have a real Grinch out there just praying to... <laughs> Oh, well, there'll, there'll be some of those, but they'll find themselves overwhelmed by disagreement from others. So right. that, that'll be fine. That'll be fine. In fact, I'm, I'm going over to France for the, for the, I know, I know it's had its premiere in Cannes, but, you know, it, it, the, the Paris opening will be a, a, a wonderful thing. And that's just about, about seven weeks away now. So wow. really looking forward to that. That's well, I, I mean I can't uh, I can't wait to see the film. It hopefully gets over here to to my my area soon um, because it, it looks truly wonderful and I love Mark Osborne and I love you and Hans. So I think it's such a oh well thank you. Well I, I I I think it's worth looking forward to because it's a lovely <laughs> film. It's and it's absolutely visually stunning, beautiful. Oh yeah, and the yeah the two animation styles. I think that's brilliant mm. brilliantly used. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. But uh, Richard, I mean, we've talked so much and. Uh, I don't want to keep you too long. You've given me so much information and 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 everything, and, I, and it's been such a, a joy and an honor to to chat with you today. That oh, was great pleasure. Anytime.